0: kick on the air. It is Tuesday night, March 30th, the year of our Lord 2021. We're here at a strange time. We're here at a strange night, but hey, we're working around your schedule. Some of you said I couldn't care less about basketball. Most of you at least have a passing interest in the elite eight. So why get in the way? It's spring. We're flexible. We got a jam-packed show either way. So let's talk some college football. We're going to talk about something that I last visited, Colin, I would say around this time back in spring of last year. And that was the balance of power. We didn't do it for every conference or every division. The SEC East is fascinating, though. And it remains fascinating for a lot of the same reasons we talked about last year. So tonight, I'm going to revisit that balance of power sort of dynamic in the East. It's something that's fun. A lot of people strangely like to talk about it. I'm going to discuss that. We're going to give you several different nuggets and tidbits from different spring practices going on across the country. It's our Whispers and Intel Spring Edition segment. We're going to continue that. I'm going to visit one of these videos that's been making the rounds about uh, Nick Saban talking at a coaches convention, I believe it was, in Louisiana, and just talking about a lot of the stuff that we have, of course, well-documented on this show about changing philosophy and about how hard it is to do, uh, but necessary that it is to do, even when you're on top sometimes. Uh, Saban basically reiterating what a lot of us have said already, but it was really interesting to hear him talk about it because it wasn't just this, ho oh, hum. how much longer do I have to be here? He was talking to other coaches, so he was pretty engaged. And fortunately, we recorded it. Someone recorded it off Zoom. So we're going to talk about that. And there's been some movement in the national championship odds picture. And so we're going to, before we go off the air tonight, sort of reset the scene. It's some of the familiar contenders at the top, but I think there's some value plays on down the board a little bit. If someone out there gets quarterback figured out, you could end up making a lot of money off these teams. So we're talking about all that tonight. It's a jam-packed show. There is no X season. We don't even put the O in front of the word around here. I do want to remind you, you we are marching ever so closer towards 2,000 followers on Instagram. We'll get that thing up in like the hundreds of thousands, but right now we kind of just started it. So the next time we do a Late Kick Show Owners Association meeting, which is going to be really fun and it'll be even better than the last one we did, it's when we get over 2,000 followers on the Instagram page. That is at Late Kick Josh, same as it is on Twitter. So go uh, give me a follow over there. It's not just a follow for follow's sake. I put a lot of college football stuff out there that's unique to that platform. I don't put it anywhere else. You'll see a lot of stuff in that Instagram story that I don't put anywhere else. I've got an eye, Josh, full. Director Colin has seen this stuff, but many of you haven't. I've got an eye, Josh, full of footage that I've shot behind the scenes when I've gone to games in locker rooms, being in stadiums before fans were allowed in, being in there after fans were allowed in. So much stuff that you don't get to see. I've just recorded it over time. I've got all that saved in there. I've been leaking some of it out on Instagram, and I will continue to do so leading up to this season, at which point, hopefully, we get some new stuff behind the scenes, which we didn't have last year. There's like a void. So at LateKickJosh on Instagram, give me a follow there. I'm done begging you. All right, let's dive into the show tonight. How about the balance of power in the SEC East? You know, This was something that we talked about at pretty good length back in March of last year some of you were asking, we had just started the show and you were asking, who do you think the best team is? And then the best program is in the SEC and the big 10. And so I did it by division. But the first thing I said was it's in not interchangeable team and program are not interchangeable. And the thing about it was we were entering the 2020 season and it looked like Florida, Georgia, they were going to be as close as they've been. We know how that story turned out more on that story in a second. But to me, uh, doing this whole balance of power thing, It's a lot more about program than team because a team in any given year is capable of doing crazy stuff like Auburn in 2010, won a national championship. They were average the year before they were average to below average after that. And then they were terrible the year following that their coach got fired. Does that mean Auburn was at any given point, the best program in the sec West? No, they happen to have the best team for one year. So I'm not saying that Florida right now correlates to Auburn. What I'm saying is in any given division, any given conference, any given year, Stuff can happen. You can have the right kind of confluence of events come together. And Florida had that last year. The question now becomes, whereas we entered last year thinking Georgia was the number one program in the East, has anything changed? So team is one year, program is like three or four years. Let me just remind you, I still can't get over how 2020 panned out. I still cannot get over the fact that we were sitting here in March or April or May and hoping we had a season. But then in August, when we figured out we were going to have a season, as I've said many times, and I'll say at least one more time here, could you imagine how close we thought Georgia and Florida were, mind you? Could you imagine looking anyone in the eye and saying, let me tell you what's going to happen here. Florida, they're going to beat Georgia. Florida, they're going to win the East. Florida is going to play the eventual national champion as close as any team in America plays them all year. And they're going to have a Heisman Trophy finalist and the fan base is going to be pissed at the end of the year. I mean grade A irate at many aspects. They're not irate overall. They were very happy at times. Okay? And I'm in some cases maybe that's maybe that's overselling the reaction. It could be far worse. It's not like Florida fans felt like, you know, the LSU fan base, although ironically LSU beat or Florida last year. It's not like that. The the anger stems from the fact that they know. Florida fans know they had a shot. They had a window. How big's the window? We don't know. They had a window last year, and they had a door. Let's say a crack in the door. And instead of kicking it down, it's like they opened the door just enough to where they could slide through, and then they let the door shut behind them. And it, so it's it looks no different now than it did this time last year. Which brings me to my next point: What is the hierarchy? What is the balance of power in the SEC East? I think the answer is the exact same as it was coming into last year. Is Florida improved as a program? They absolutely are. Have they pulled alongside Georgia as a program? I don't think they have. They certainly pulled, certainly have not pulled ahead of them as a program. Doesn't mean they can't beat them. We just saw any given year this last year. That doesn't mean that at all. But even after 2020, I still think Georgia is atop the SEC East. The question becomes, was last year any kind of one-hit wonder? Was last year any kind of one-off? Okay, I'm not going that far with Florida. I'm certainly not going that far. They could win it again this year. Uh, this is far from a prediction segment. They could win it again this year. But when you look at the critical factors, I don't think anyone, at least at this desk right now, which is the desk of one, is ready to say Florida has overtaken Georgia and anyone other than Georgia is atop the SEC East. It's a clear one, too. I'll grant you that. How big is the gap? Eh. To varying degrees, we can debate that. But you know what? That's not where it's most interesting to me. Where it's most interesting to me is in the, the B tier, kind of the tier two of the SEC East. So you got Georgia and you got Florida. Tennessee, a lot of question marks, mainly NCAA related Vanderbilt's hitting the reset button, but there are three other programs over here. One of them, South Carolina, brand new coach in Shane Beamer. One of them is Kentucky where Mark Stoops, even though he's been there for like, it seems like forever, they're injecting a lot of new into their program. And then also, Colin, did I, what, what, what coach did I just say with Kentucky? Did I just, you know what? We were doing basketball earlier. So there's a chance I said, Mark few, if I did erase it from your memory. If I said Stoops, forget I ever brought this up. So you got Stoops at Kentucky doing a lot of new things. But then at Missouri, which for all intents and purposes, according to other people in the SEC, is like halfway to Canada. Missouri and Eli Drinkwitz, they're doing a lot of things off the radar. That's the nature of Missouri. Like if you're not contending for the division, which they did not too long ago in a couple of years in a row under Gary Pinkel, not a lot of attention up there. But I want you to think about that. Plus that constitutes tier two of the SEC East right now. And with the SEC East, someone's going to pop in tier two. These these programs aren't all going to have down years. These programs aren't all going to go seven and five. So someone's going to figure something out. Either you're going to have the year two pop effect with Missouri, with new coaching staff in town. Either you're going to have that happen at South Carolina with a new coaching staff in town, period, and just something happens. Don't know. Takes a grand total of one year. Or you could have... A fresh infusion of new ideas offensively at Kentucky that bears a lot of fruit. I think the tier two, the second level of the SEC East, for my money, may be one of the most fun subplots of college football to watch, not just in the conference of the SEC, but overall nationally in this upcoming year. Really fun to watch. And listen, I'm not saying Gonzaga basketball is bad. I'm just saying they don't have a place in a conversation about the SEC East. Spring Intel. We do a bunch of whispers and intel, basically everything that we hear, a network of team sites there to provide us info. And we do this all throughout spring and especially during fall camp. We like to do this segment a lot. And so I just want to kind of whip around the country. There's no real order to this. I wanted to start with some of the early feedback that we're hearing about true freshman quarterbacks. This is exciting. It's a quarterback-driven league. Uh, It hasn't always been, but it certainly is now and moving forward. And so I'm looking at whichever league we want to talk about, whether it's the ACC or whether it's the SEC, and it's really a quarterback-driven sport, but there are two names popping up right now. One of them is Drake May, incoming freshman at North Carolina. Another is Garrett Nussmeyer, incoming freshman at LSU. These are two names that are interesting because neither of these guys are being pressed into early action. Both of them probably would be capable at a school smaller in stature or thinner roster-wise in stature they probably would be capable of starting. So here's what's interesting. Whether you listen to the insiders at North Carolina talk about Drake May, or you listen to the insiders down in LSU talk about Garrett Nussmeyer, what they say is they say, you can tell, it's very evident. When you look at the raw tools, when you look at the physical makeup, you can tell why these guys were rated as they were. You can tell why they were recruited as heavily as they were. You can tell they're going to be a factor down the road, but yet you always get to add that little caveat, down the road. Why? Not because it's a negative or a pejorative in context towards them. It's because you have the luxury of having full quarterback rooms. You've got, obviously, Sam Howell, who is ready to not only start at North Carolina again this year, but be, I mean, a dark horse, if not an outright Heisman contender this year. And then at LSU, here's what's really crazy. LSU is coming off a terrible year record-wise. But LSU may have the best quarterback room situation that they've had, I don't know in how long, maybe ever, in the program's history. TJ Finley started games for them last year, and he's like second or third or fourth in some people's minds on their overall depth chart. If you were to just stack quarterbacks right now, who would you trust in games? Max Johnson is the name to watch, obviously. Started later in the season. I was sitting at this desk the other day. We were doing something else. Uh, we had Trey Scott in here, actually. And he said, Do you assume? That uh, Miles Brennan is going to be the starter for LSU, and I quickly said, "No, I don't. I don't assume that. I, it's because I don't. It wasn't reactionary. I, I've already talked about that, obviously, on this show. But I have spoken with some of my LSU brethren. Who, uh, well, number one, you believe I've turned on the program because I was mildly critical of Ed Orgeron? Not the case. Uh, but secondly, I've spoken to some of you, and you, some of you, do consider Miles Brennan to be the favorite as long as he's healthy. Now, here's here's the difference." Some of you assume that because you think he's better. Others of you assume that because you think Orgeron thinks he's better and he's going to stick with his guy. Either of those may be true. What I'm telling you is I don't think this is decided, even close to decided. I think Max Johnson, according to, again, the people close to the program, easily looks the best that he's ever looked. That's to be understood and to be expected because he got some starting action under his belt last year. So I would keep a very close eye on both of those quarterback rooms because, number one, You have legit out front talent ready to start this year. And then number two, they're starting to develop levels of talent to where Drake may, Hey, he's the guy down the road for North Carolina or, you know, Max Johnson or Garrett Nussmeyer, for example, maybe not now for Nussmeyer, but down the road, he's the guy. That's how you build a sustained championship caliber program and not just sort of a flash in the pan. Hey, remember that one year we contended. That's not what they're building at those two places at Clemson. With a Z or with an S, you know, some of us struggle more than others with this. It's the perception versus the reality deal. The perception right now, and I understand this because even I think this way, the perception with the Tigers would be they got to get DJ Uyangalale ready. We saw him, we saw glimpses of him last year, had to start the Notre Dame game, looked really good, threw for like half a mile, they lost a close game, but yet he validated a lot of his 24 7 sports player ranking coming out of high school. Yeah, he did. So you would think that's the focus there. They had Sean Watson. They had Trevor Lawrence. This is the next guy in line. Always skip over Kelly Bryant, don't we? It wasn't a special year, overly special year. But he's the next guy in line. DJ's the next guy in line. And he is. And you would think that'd be the focus there. And I'm not saying that that's not a focus. But there's another, to me, more primary focus in spring for Clemson offensively. And that's the running game. Because as we speak about that Notre Dame game last year, two of them, by the way, what was the difference there? I mean, one of them was a close loss on the road and yeah, you had your backup quarterback in. When you had Trevor back, it was a blowout. I think maybe from a blimp's point of view, you would say quarterback made all the difference. No, he didn't. But quarterback obviously didn't hurt you having back, but they were able to run the ball the second time. They weren't able to run the ball the first time. Dabo Swinney has seen that. And here's the other thing he understands. All these championship caliber programs coaches understand this. Ryan Day's the same way. Saban's the same way. Lincoln Riley is the same way. They don't care if they're running over someone's face 55 to 13 in a a mean, well, I'm going to say meaningless in the grand scheme of things, not to them. A meaningless conference game where they're they're favored by 35, and they win 55-13, and it doesn't matter what they did there as it relates to what they're going to be able to do against better competition. Dabo Swinney looked at his run game grind to a halt at their worst moments last year, and he understands there's probably some direct correlation there. And so I've listened to some of the reports out of Clemson. Talked to one person. I don't have a huge network at Clemson but that's what they've talked about. This huge focus, this premium being placed on developing that run game and getting it back to the caliber it needs to be to complement the other aspects, developing talent at the receiver position. Obviously, uh, having DJ Uyangalale emerge as the guy that you need him to emerge as. Speaking of the quarterback position and speaking of developing, there's sort of a uh, backup to move ahead sort of situation unfolding on the planes at Auburn. Bo Bo Nix, is the now third-year quarterback at Auburn. Normally, that's a really good thing. But right now, not so much. So Bo Nix has underachieved, to me, relative to his potential so far there. A million different reasons. Some of them are on his shoulders. Some of them not so much, tied to the former staff. And we've talked about that. What we haven't talked about as much, because spring ball just started, is how much this new staff can get done. So Brian Harson's the new head coach at Auburn. Mike Bobo, you may or may not know, is the new offensive coordinator there. Here's the way it was explained to me. The way it was explained to me, and this kind of ties into what we've already talked about from Auburn. If you have ever tried to tie your shoes and then you look down, and especially if you're in a hurry and you look down and you realize there's a knot, what do you have to do? You can't just tie the shoes. You got to untie the knot before you can ever tie the shoes. And it sucks, but it's part of the process. That is Auburn football right now. That is the task that Brian Harson and Mike Bobo have on their plate. As developers of the quarterback position, as installers of a new offense, they can't go anywhere until they get quarterback figured out. And what they've learned, and it's not a surprise to anyone who's watched Bo Nicks, is there's a lot of untying of knots to be done before you even start day one of install and day one of development of him doing things your way. They got to untie the knot. It's unfortunate, but that's why they know they don't have a rep or a practice or a day that they can waste over there because you don't get grace periods. When you get paid the way you get paid in major college football, no one wants to give you a grace period. So Auburn folks think their roster's good enough. They think that they've given the coach everything that he needs. Win. Not telling you to win 11 games in year one, but you, you better not go you know, three and nine or whatever the case may be. So you better win. There's one more name I want to uh, point out. It's kind of off the radar. It's out at Texas Tech. I'm keeping an eye on Tyler Shuck. Tyler Shuck, probably a name that you know you've heard but you can't remember. Tyler Shuck, Tyler Shuck, who was that? That was the starting quarterback at Oregon. And Tyler Shuck has since moved on. Now, the prevailing wisdom that I buy into, by the way, has been Ty Thompson came in, big time recruit out of Arizona. I think he's going to end up starting for them at some point this year if he just doesn't start the regular season in week one. And because of that, you know, talent cream rises. Tyler Shuck was able to see that, so he moved on. Maybe that's true, but I think what what is tied to that, if you believe that, is the notion that, oh, we'll probably never hear much from him again. In two years, you'll look up and say, where'd Tyler Shuck end up going to? And then you Google his name and he's at some FCS program and now he's selling insurance somewhere. That's probably how you think his career is going to go. I'm not so sure about that. So Matt Wells is the head coach at Texas Tech. Sonny Cumbie is the offensive coordinator. They believe they've got a perfect fit there. And I want to note, There were a lot of options for Tyler Shuck when he decided to transfer. You've got a game proven starter at the Power Five level, by the way, on a team that won the Pac 12 championship, and he decides to enter his name into the portal. He had a lot of suitors. He had a lot of, I've heard him say, as many as 20 to 30 programs that came after him. So he had options, and he chose Texas Tech. And I think part of it was the realization from that coaching staff that whatever they want to do offensively, Tyler Shuck is a really, really good fit for this. So don't be surprised. If this is one of those situations that sort of flies in the face of the conventional wisdom and it could be one of those deals where Oregon ends up better for it and Tyler Shuck ends up better for it, which, of course, is the way you want all those dynamics to play out. All right, we move on. Let's let's just close the book on spring intel and let's open the book on philosophy, football philosophy, because otherwise it would fly over everyone's head, myself included. I wanted to talk a couple of minutes about Nick Saban here with some great audio from this past week. I mean, great anytime you get to see a coach talking to other coaches, which you normally don't get access to unless you go to a clinic or you hack into someone's Zoom, it's it's fascinating. And this will be no different. We're going to play the video in a couple of minutes. But let me just ask you a question. Let me frame it here. What would you do if you were a salesman or a saleswoman and your record in sales was consistently Among the best in the company. Huge company, and you're either right at the top or near the top every single year. What would you do if you were like a runner, if you were a person who entered themselves in a bunch of those marathons, and you were consistently placing right there near the top? Or if you're just working, I don't know, whatever you do, and you guys come around to performance review time, and for like the ninth straight year, your performance review is right there at or near the top of the company. What would you do? Your answer probably was not, i change everything. This is what really cements Nick Saban's legacy to me. I've spoken about this many times. I've spoken to him about it on this show before. Nick Saban gets to around 2013, 2014, and he is at or near the top of the sport. They have won already three national championships during his tenure by this point in his career at Alabama, and he changed everything. They didn't have to have a five-loss season to do it. Uh, They didn't have to have crippling setbacks. They didn't have to fall out of the top 10 in recruiting. He changed everything while he was on top. A lot of people have noticed it now that we're several years removed from it. But he didn't have several years' perspective before he had to make the decision. So I'll talk about how difficult that is and how huge it's been for college football and Alabama on the other side. But this was audio from a sort of a coach's clinic setting that was last week. I believe he was speaking to some coaches in Louisiana. So we're going to roll the footage. Jesse's going to
1: play this for you, and then I'll talk about it on the other side. Take a listen to this. We have good defense. I mean, we gave up 19 points a game last year, and that was first in the SEC. 19 points a game. That's six points above what we think is average, which is giving up 13 points a game. And it's first in the SEC. So the game is different now. People score fast. The, the 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 whole idea, like I grew up with the idea that you play good defense, you run the ball, you control vertical field position on special teams, and you're going to win. Whoever rushes the ball the most for the most yards is going to win the game. You're not going to win anything now doing that, right? Because a the way the spread is, the way the rules are to run RPOs, the way the rules are that you can block downfield and throw the ball behind a lot of scrimmage. I mean, those rules have changed college football. All right. And no huddle fastball has changed college football. So I changed my philosophy about five or six years ago. All right. And well, it was more than that when Lane came here, we said, we got to outscore him. I think that's some of the best audio that we get to hear
0: because it's real. It's not a press conference setting. I'm not saying he's fake at press conferences, but I'm saying coaches have a certain guard about themselves in a press setting that they don't have when they're talking to their peers, when they're talking to other coaches. That's why I always love being in those settings. If you can ever get yourself in one, and believe me, it's hard to do. And so you saw how animated he was. You saw how passionate and how how in that moment he was, he's talking about something he cares about. It really matters to him. But I want you to again think about how hard. That must have been, if you're running a lemonade stand, okay, and you got good sales, but then other lemonade stands come and set up on the corner. Yeah, you may have to change some things about your operation, but it impacts a total of one person. It's you. It's your lemonade stand. You don't employ hundreds of people. You're not responsible for the futures of dozens to hundreds of student athletes. You don't have all that weight, not to mention the razor sharp white hot spotlight focus of a massive fan base. Oh, and by the way, you're the most high-profile coach and program in the sport. In a country that's rabid about that sport, you got all that attention, you got all that pressure, you got all that responsibility, and you decide we're on top of this sport, but my instinct is telling me I need to change everything. And he did it. And now they dominate to a level that they never had even dominated before. And keep in mind, that was a program that at this point had run off a string of three titles in four years at one point. That's legacy. That's what separates really good from greatest of all time. That's why that acronym exists. That's why you see the little goat emojis all over Nick Saban's face all the time. Because that is the greatest of all time. Because not very many are capable of doing that. Even if their instinct tells them to, not very many people will be capable of pulling that trigger. What has it meant, though? You've seen what it's meant for Alabama, man. Alabama's rolling now. now. All Alabama did was keep winning. They just changed the way the scoreboard looks. Instead of beating you 27 to 13, now they can beat you 63 to 38 if they want to. It feels like they're vulnerable only because you've grown accustomed to seeing Bama dominate defensively. And now, uh-oh, Lane Kiffin, Lane Kiffin nearly hung half a 100 on them. Doesn't matter because you couldn't hold them under 60. So it really doesn't matter, does it? And so now, what does it mean for college football? That's what I want to talk about. We've played, or heard at least, I don't know, Colin, if we've played it on this show a whole lot, but we've heard several times now, dozens of times, that old quote, that old soundbite from Nick Saban back in, ironically, around this time. It was a little bit before this time, where the RPO was really proliferating itself through the SEC, and Nick Saban did not like it. And the reason he didn't like it is, as he mentioned there, it really changed the rules or made the rules unenforceable. The you know three yards versus one yard down the field and RPO and linemen downfield throwing the ball and, and all that stuff that some of these RPO coaches fought against. They tried to get the rule changed a little while ago. See, they wanted the rule to reflect the NFL rule where linemen can't be more than one yard downfield on the, on the passes, obviously. And so they wouldn't do it. The league wouldn't go for it. The NCAA didn't go for it. And so Nick Saban looked around and he just said, is this what we want football to be? Now, at the time, everyone, because they needed to get clicks, they labeled him a whiner. And I remember vividly, I was doing radio down in Columbus at Georgia. And I remember thinking to myself, there's no way this guy is going to let the sport leave him behind. He's adapted at every turn. It's documented. He's done it throughout his career. There's no way he's going to let the sport leave him behind. And the reason you could rest assured that wasn't going to happen is because he can recruit at the highest level in the sport. So there's no way he's going to have access to any kind of athlete he wants and not get the best kind of athlete to play the best kind of ball that's best suited to winning in modern day college football. So what he was doing there, basically, as it turns out, was serving a warning to the rest of college football that college football should have listened to. Because to be honest, back in the day, you had a shot. He had a much better shot to me at beating Alabama. Alabama was built like a bowling ball, essentially. Nick Saban did not want to put all of the focus of his entire team on the quarterback position, kind of like it is now. And the reason is because he thought he could build such a physically superior roster that I, I will just build a machine that leans on you for four quarters and we will disassemble you, we'll kind of crush you, we'll suffocate you. But it won't be, you know, it won't be like it looks now. Because we won't have that kind of dynamic quarterback play. Well, then, as the sport started to change, Nick Saban looked and he was never incapable of doing that. What folks were doing in the Big 12, for example, Alabama was never incapable of doing that. They were unwilling to do that because they had access to a bunch of 300 pound defensive linemen who could also run sideline to sideline. Why in the world would you voluntarily play that style of ball, which, by the way, was not winning a bunch of national championships? He wanted to play the style that was winning championships. But when the sport started to change, he looked around and said, We're fully capable of doing that, whether you realize it or not. We're, it's not a great mystery what you guys are doing. I mean, you got Mike Leach wandering around out there at Texas Tech with a playbook about the size of my driver's license in his hand. You can't possibly think that this is too complex for us to figure out. I can figure it out. Do you want me to run my football program that way? And there was silence, which was um, taken by him as a complicit yes. And so now he just changed everything he does. And so now, Whereas you used to be able to, if you could if you could turn Alabama over a couple times, they did not have the dynamic quarterback play that it takes to come back in games. Like they have had to done against Georgia, for instance, in a national championship game. They didn't used to have that. Well, they got it now because they changed their entire recruiting philosophy. They changed their critical factors. They look for at the skill positions. They put a premium on a different kind of receiver. You notice they don't have many 6'4 receivers walk through the door anymore you notice how they all look like Jalen Waddle or Devante Smith or Henry Ruggs or Jerry Judy, like all of those guys, you give or take 20 pounds, you give or take one or two inches in height and weight, they're all the same. They prioritize speed and space. That's all they prioritize. They don't care if you can win a jump ball because they don't really have many of them. They can outrun you. They just recruit a bunch of racehorses instead of a bunch of really, really tall superior athletes. That's how they do it now. And so That's what they wanted the game to be, I guess. But now, as it relates to the sport moving forward, now you wonder, how do you get an edge on them? Because everyone's looking for an angle. Everyone's gunning for them. They've been gunning for them for like a decade. So now how do you get an edge on them? The answer is, I don't know. Because the last remaining edge that I thought you could get is taking advantage of the fact that they don't have a dynamic offense. Well, they've got one now. So now what do you do? But here's the other thing as we move on here. The other thing that it screams to anyone in that organization, is um, this guy really practices what he preaches. So I guarantee you, he's always talking about doing your job, doing your job, doing your job. And he's always telling someone, your performance review and my attitude towards you will be solely based on whether you're doing everything in your job responsibilities that it takes for us to win. That's how I'm going to grade you. It doesn't matter if you like what I ask you to do. You need to trust that what I'm asking you to do is for the betterment of this organization. It's one thing for an employee to get orders from a boss and to say, man, he's asking me to do something I don't want to do. And therefore you're not motivated to do it. Well, in this particular organization, you just listen to Nick Saban. Do you think in your right mind, this guy wants offense to look like it looks right now? Do you really think if he had his way, and he could choose style of play, and he could choose the overall themes that exist in the sport of college football. You really think this is the tapestry with which he'd want to coach in front of? No. He likes it the way it used to be. But yet, this is the example. This is why the employees there in that organization are willing to run through a brick wall for the guy and do whatever they're asked to do, even if they don't want to do it. He himself is doing something he really doesn't want to do. And so, if the leader of the organization is willing to do something he doesn't really feel like doing for the sake of the betterment of the program or the organization, then how in the world are you supposed to be any different? That's the beauty. That's legacy. That's why that's the best. Before we wrap up tonight, I wanted to update you on some national championship odds. So, Brad Crawford, who does a lot of work on our national desk at 247sports.com, he does a really good job of following this stuff and following the ebbs and flows of the national championship odds race. So our friends at William Hill, for example, and a number of the other sports books out there, they'll offer futures bets, which essentially just means if you woke up this morning and you said, you know what? I think that Texas A&M is going to win the national championship this year. There's a place for you to bet that. And by the way, if you're right about that, you can make yourself a lot of money because right now, what are they? Uh, 2,500 to one plus 20, excuse me, plus 2,500 juice. Therefore not quite 2,500 to one. Uh, plus 2,500 juice on Texas a and which means if you bet 100 bucks on the Aggies to win the national title, you would win yourself $2,500 back if they indeed won it. But I wanted to go down this list, and we'll have obviously graphical representation uh, if you want to look at this, but it's a usual suspects lineup at the top. Alabama is sitting at plus 300 right now. They are the odds-on favorite to win the national championship this upcoming year. All these numbers mean, by the way, is this would be the return if you bet $100. So Alabama, you bet $100 on them. If they win the title, you'd win $300. Uh, Friends, that is is not a lot, especially when we're talking about essentially betting Bama against the entire field in March. So I want to lay off that tied bet right now. Let's just wait and see what happens. Clemson, Ohio State, and Oklahoma all have better odds. That's the term I'm going to use. Better odds now than they did the last time Brad put this thing out. Clemson right now is sitting at plus 350, which means they're the second overall odds-on favorite right now. A lot of believers, obviously, in the return to dominance. Not just prominence, but dominance with Clemson's offense and Clemson's team. Buckeyes, plus 500. Oklahoma's at plus 700. Now, this is not a surprise. Again, the lineup of these teams is not a surprise. Do you see any value before we extend into the second tier of teams? Because i got to be honest with you. Bama's always going to be there. In fact, all these teams are there every year now. This is Oklahoma's best shot by a mile to win a national championship this year. They've got some competition in conference, like Iowa State. We're going to talk about them in a second. Iowa State is is well within the top ten to top fifteen range of odds-on favorite in their own right. Uh, Texas plus five thousand, not quite. But think about Oklahoma. Oklahoma, when you when you get to those old proverbial boxes that you want to check as to whether a team's going to be capable of winning a title, quarterback you figure is going to be there. Roster is there. Coaching staff is there. They obviously have got a manageable schedule. So Oklahoma's sitting at plus 700. Easily the best defensive lineup, I think, that they will have trotted out there. Easily the most balanced talent team that uh, Lincoln Riley will have had. Oklahoma's got some good value here, I think, at plus 700. But then I wanted to go to the second tier. Because this is where it gets fun. This is kind of the darts at the board um, territory. Because remember, this is not to make the playoff. This is not to make the title game. This is to win the title game. And as Notre Dame, for example, has shown us, there's a huge difference between being able to make the title or make the playoff and win the title game. So right now, Georgia, even with the George Pickens injury, uh, they are still fifth overall. They're at plus 800. That just goes to show you there's a lot of value on overall talent on a roster and JT Daniels is there too. But then there are some other notable teams. The next two teams here, I think we need to circle. I'm going to come back to them. Texas A&M's plus 2,500. LSU is plus 3,500. Now, Florida was next in line at plus 4,000. But I want to pause after I have a hiccup there. I want to pause and I want to talk about the Aggies and the Tigers there. Because out of all the remaining teams, I think those are the two to circle. Because out of all of these remaining teams, when we consider what we need to win a title, we need we need a good, we go, a good enough roster. Okay, and both of these teams have a good enough roster. But we got to have really good quarterback play. We have seen we have to have that to win a title. We have no clue who's even going to start at quarterback for either of those programs. Texas A&M, we think it's going to be Haynes King at LSU. You say Miles Brennan, I say Max Johnson. But here's what could happen. We're betting based on theory at this point, if we're betting these teams. What could happen? The ceiling, in other words. What is the max potential? The max potential at quarterback for these two teams could be good enough to make a run in the national title it also could be eight and four. Okay. So there is no guarantee. That's why you're taking these bigger odds. But at AM, the ceiling there is going to be championship caliber quarterback play. At LSU, it's going to be two. Whereas Florida being at plus 4,000, I don't think the ceiling there this year will be championship caliber quarterback play. Hope for Emery Jones sake, I'm wrong. I just don't think that. And then when you start going down the list at Miami and Notre Dame, Iowa State, Penn State, they're all plus 4,000. It's the same deal. They're all kind of comparable when it comes to roster composition. These are all good rosters, good to great rosters. There is no quarterback on any of these campuses right now that's probably going to be good enough to develop into a 2021 at least championship caliber quarterback, uh, or at least capable of leading a team there. And then Texas is at plus five thousand. Um, you know, ironically, I think Texas and Casey Thompson, if he was the guy. Casey Thompson, for all we know, could fit a lot more within the realm of AM and LSU in terms of ceiling, overall ceiling, overall potential, granted with a whole lot of unknown than some of these other schools do. So those are your updated championship odds. Obviously, very little skill in talking about this, even as spring ball has yet to wrap up. This is the kind of stuff that we'll circle back around to towards media days. And then as we get to right before we open fall camp, now, this is something that would be on our content calendar, but Right now, I just wanted to toss that out there so that if any of you want to make a prediction in the comment section, you're on record for it. And then you can go back and you can screenshot it and you can say, I told you on March 30th or thereabouts in the year of our Lord 2021, who would be hoisting that trophy. All right. Good show here. Very good show. And we've got some basketball coming up. So appreciate all of you for watching. Remember at late kick Josh on Instagram. Get us to 2000 and we will get you the next Late Kick Show Owners Association meeting. Uh, having fun? Every showdown is another show closer to college football 2021. So for Director Emeritus column and for our entire crew with Jesse and company in Connecticut, I'm Josh Pate. Thanks so much for watching. Have a great rest of your evening and God bless.